Hey guys, welcome back to Keystone State of Mind. It's me, Steph, your tour guide to the dark side of Pennsylvania. Thanks for joining me again today. And I just wanna say a big thank you to everyone who listened to my first episode. I got some great feedback and some really important constructive criticism. Uh, the big thing was that the first episode was just too quiet. So I'm gonna to try to remedy that this week. Hopefully it won't be too loud. Uh, but thanks again to everybody. I really appreciate it. I've got so much great support and I could not be happier about it. One thing I did forget to mention last week was that uh, the music, the intro and outro music for the show is performed exclusively for Keystone State of Mind by Jay Root. Jay is a really talented musician. He plays in a band called The Red Eyes, and they're actually performing at the end of this month, uh, January 31st, at Ransom Steel Tavern in Appalachian, New York, if anybody's interested in checking them out. Uh, big shout out. Thank you to Jay for hooking us up. Okay, so just one more thing before I get into today's story. Let's get into a Keystone state of mind. As always, I'll be enjoying an ice-cold can of Keystone Light while I talk to you today. A little liquid sanity in this crazy world. Cheers! Today we are talking about Queen Esther Montour and her role in the Battle of Wyoming during the American Revolution. This refers to the town of Wyoming in eastern Pennsylvania, not the state, obviously, since it didn't exist yet. Queen Esther has gone down in history as a bloodthirsty savage bent on revenge. She has been called the fiend of the Susquehanna, the most infamous of all monsters, and the most infuriated demon in the carnival of blood. Did she deserve this reputation, or was she just a boss bitch that got a bad rap? To find out, let's examine what we know about the queen. Esther Montour was born in 1720, just over the New York border, in a small area that is now called Montour Falls, named for her family and for the beautiful waterfalls that flow there. If you aren't from around here, you probably have never heard of the town, but you may be familiar with its closest neighbor, Watkins Glen, especially if you're a NASCAR fan. Watkins Glen International Speedway is right in this area. Not really important to the story, but I just want to give you a little geographical perspective. Esther's heritage is really fuzzy, but from what I could find, she was a descendant of French settlers and indigenous peoples of Canada and America. Her great-grandfather came from France and settled near Quebec. He married a woman from the Huron First Nations tribe. Esther is said to be related directly or by marriage to several of the five great Indian nations. Her family really seemed to embrace their American Indian heritage. Uh, this is evident by the fact that both Esther and her sister Catherine married chiefs from the Muncie, Delaware tribe of Pennsylvania. And I haven't really been able to verify this, but I did read somewhere that she was raised Iroquoian. Uh, her parents were also mixed descent on both sides. So they had a lot of French heritage, but they also had a lot of American Indian heritage. But they seemed to lean towards more towards their American Indian heritage in their daily life, in their lifestyle. Esther spoke 
Algonquian, Iroquoian, and English, and often acted as a translator for the tribespeople and the English settlers. I just want to take a second here to discuss the nomenclature that I'm using. Uh, When I was growing up, I was taught that the respectful terminology when referring to indigenous peoples of the Americas was Native Americans. But that has seemed to change. And based on the quick research I did, now the respected terminology is American Indian. So I'm going to go with that. Um, I want to be as respectful as possible to the heritage of anyone I'm speaking about. So if anybody has any thoughts on that, please reach out and let me know. So somewhere in the mid-1700s, Esther married Chief Igahoan of the Muncie, Delaware tribe. I was unable to find an exact date, and that's going to be a broken record through this episode because I could not find a lot of exact information on her life. It's really not that important to the legend, to the story. I wish I could have found more exact dates and I really did try, but they're just not there to find. But when they were married, they settled in an area that's now known as Tioga Point in Pennsylvania. This is directly over the border from New York where the Susquehanna and Chemung rivers meet. This is when Esther took on the moniker of Queen, and the village was named Queen Esther's Town. I was really surprised when I researched this that I had never heard of this. I'd never learned of this in school, in any of the uh, American Indian subjects we discussed, this never came up. And this is right in my backyard, very close to where I grew up. I, I literally grew up less than five miles from this area. So I was kind of bummed. Where were my teachers at? Queen Esther's town was home to 70 Muncie, Delaware families who lived in log and plank houses that were very similar to the construction of the English settlers nearby at the time. Queen Esther's castle was the largest structure in the town made of wooden planks with a thatched roof and a covered porch. The town itself was a little less than 100 acres, but they had thousands of acres surrounding it that they used as pastures for their horses and cattle, for fruit orchards, and for cornfields. Today, Queen Esther's town would cover Sayre, Athens, Greenleaf's Landing, Milan, and Willowana. These are all little towns along the New York PA border. Locals of this area will recognize the Queen's name as the namesake of Queen Esther Estates, an affluent community located in present-day Willowana. They also use the neighboring town of Shishikwin as a ceremonial area where certain tribal religious rites were performed. The name Shishikwin comes from the word Shishikwanink in the Lenape language. It means at the place of the gourd rattle. A gourd rattle was used in the religious ceremonies held there. Not long after establishing the village in 1772, Chief Igohoan died, leaving Queen Esther in charge of the town and its people. I tried to find out if this was customary in the Muncie Delaware tribe. Did the wife of the chief always take over leadership after his death? Unfortunately, I could not find a definitive answer to this. 
But I was able to confirm that Esther's sister, Catherine, also took over leadership of her village after her husband died. So either this was a common custom or the women in this family just knew how to run shit. A quick side note about Catherine Montour. As I mentioned earlier, she also uh, married a Muncie, Delaware chief, and they settled right near Montour Falls, where their parents had settled earlier. And this town is still called Catherine to this day. It's a very small town just on the outside of Montour Falls. And there's a little creek that runs through there that's also named after Catherine, Catherine Creek. So based on this, knowing that Montour Falls is named for the family, Catherine has a town and a creek named for herself, I tend to think that these guys must have been influential people. The fact that their names are still known today, even though we may not know where they came from, tells me that they had to have been somewhat important in their time. And Queen Esther was important. She was well-respected in her village and by her English neighbors. And this is saying a lot in this time when English settlers, colonist women, were forbidden from owning property. They were legally responsible to obey their husbands. And here's a woman running a village in charge of men, women, and children. It's kind of a big deal. And I really thought that that was an interesting part of the story. It says a lot to me about her character and the role of women in her tribe. So now we know a little bit about Queen Esther's life and her heritage And now we have to talk about the social and political climate in Pennsylvania leading up to the Battle of Wyoming. Well, it was the 1770s in the American colonies. And we all know that was crazy. It was a crazy time. The colonists were getting pissed about taxation without representation. Their government was thousands of miles away and they had no say in the way things were being run. And they revolted. Not going to go too far into the American Revolution because I'd be here for hours. It's one of my favorite times in history to talk about. But it doesn't have a lot to do with Queen Esther's legend. So, as far as I can tell, and everything that I've researched, Queen Esther was pretty neutral in this conflict. Her village is not reported to have been involved in any fight up to the Battle of Wyoming. By all accounts, Queen Esther got along great with everybody, with all of her neighbors, and she worked as a translator, as I said before, for between the English and the American Indians. So there's nothing to say that she really had a stake in this either way, at least not up to this point. There's a lot of speculation and rumor regarding Queen Esther's role in the Battle of Wyoming, but let's talk about what we know for sure about the battle. Wyoming held a little outpost that was guarded by some Continental soldiers that were not in their prime. And just to be clear, the Continental soldiers would be the colonists, uh, the rebel colonists, the patriots we may know of them as. And on the other side would be the British and the loyal colonists, the colonists that were loyal to the British crown. 
In this instance, there was also a big group of American Indians that were fighting on the side of the British. About 700 American Indians and 400 British military rolled up into Wyoming to get at this little garrison. And it was being guarded by old men and young boys. Most of the able-bodied soldiers of the Continental Army were out fighting in the bigger battles. So the British took this opportunity to come in and snag these munitions that they could grab. And they pretty easily and pretty quickly took over this fort. Uh, The battle was said to only last about 45 minutes to an hour. And 340 patriots were killed. The British troops were led by Colonel John Butler, and he later wrote in his journal that 227 patriot scalps were taken and sold to the British for 10 bucks apiece. If that's true, this is the bloodiest battle in Pennsylvania during the American Revolution. So now we are finally ready to discuss Queen Esther's alleged role in the Battle of Wyoming. Legend holds that she had gotten word that a few days before her son was killed in Luzerne County by some drunken colonial military scouts. She was angered to the point of a murderous rage. She quickly assembled some of her strongest men and canoed down the Susquehanna to Wyoming to take part in the battle. She took prisoners and lined up 16 colonists. One by one, she laid their heads on a large rock and bashed their skulls with her tomahawk. Covered in blood, she then raided the homes and stole the clothing of the widows she had just created. She is said to have ridden on a town side saddle on a stolen horse, wearing seven bonnets, one on top of the other. As many clothes as she could put on, from the women of Wyoming, covered in a scarlet riding cloak, carrying in in her hand a string of scalps from the slaughtered friends of those who were witness to her savage brutality. It's reported that she had said later, I was never so tired as yesterday from killing so many damn Yankees. All right, so let's break this down. Queen Esther finds out her son was murdered by a couple of drunks in Luzerne County. She gets super pissed, hops in her canoe, and cruises down the Susquehanna to Wyoming. Joins in this battle that's already going on, smashes in the skull of 16 dudes, steals some clothes, steals a horse, rides back on up to Queen Esther's town. Let's talk about why this might be a little unlikely. First of all, Queen Esther's town is really far away from Wyoming, at least for the time. I did some Google mapping, and it's about 85 miles. And that's using modern roads. However, the route you would take really does go right along the Susquehanna River. So let's just, for the sake of argument, say it's 85 miles down the Susquehanna River. How the hell long would it take somebody to canoe 85 miles? A freaking long time, I think. And who knows? This is July in Pennsylvania. July is generally a pretty dry month. If the river's not flowing super fast, 
it's going to take a long time. So, of course, I wasn't able to find an exact date for this alleged murder of Queen Esther's son, but the legend says it was a few days before. So that gives her a very short amount of time to gather what she needs and canoe that far. Plus, how did she know that the Battle of Wyoming was even going on? It only lasted for 45 minutes. How how could she possibly know that was happening? And the craziest thing to me is that I could not find any record of her having a son at all. And granted, I'm sure there weren't really exact birth records, but I couldn't find his name or a birthday or anything. Now, it probably would have been weird if she didn't have kids, but I can find no record of it whatsoever. So that's just a couple big red flags to me that this probably didn't happen. But why does everybody think it happened? Well, for one thing, that rock that she allegedly laid these guys' heads on to smash their skulls, it's still there. It's still in the same place in Wyoming, Pennsylvania, and it's known as the Bloody Rock. It's encased in a cage, and it has a historical marker standing next to it that reads, The Bloody Rock. On the night of July 3rd, 1778, after the Battle of Wyoming, 14 or more captive American soldiers were murdered here by a maul wielded by a revengeful Indian woman, traditionally but not certainly identified as Queen Esther. Now, this is one of these historical markers. It's like a blue sign with yellow writing. I don't know if they're everywhere, but they're all over around here. And they commemorate historical events that happened in this area. They're placed by the historical societies of the counties around here. So this is a huge reason why this legend still exists. The bloody rock is still there. The historical marker is still there. I will share pictures of, of both on the Facebook page so you can see them. So if she didn't do it, why would they say that she did? Well, she's a woman of mixed descent who's in charge of a village. A lot of people did not care for that type of thing. She had thousands of acres of fertile farmland in the basin of the Shemung and the Susquehanna River. Maybe they wanted an excuse to take that land, and they did. In September of 1778, so just two months later, the Continental Army, led by Colonel Thomas Hartley, sacked Queen Esther's town and burned it to the ground. There was talk that Queen Esther was killed here, but it's pretty well known that she did get away and that she moved up north to Watertown, New York, and remarried. However, her village was destroyed. All of her people that she had been caring for for all these years were gone, whether they died or had to relocate. And she had to get out of town because people thought she savagely massacred these 16 men and then stole all their women's clothes and stuff. 
So her reign as Queen Esther was over, at least as she knew it. And there is no record at all about what her life was like after. So that's the story. You can make up your own mind whether or not you think it happened like the legend says it did. I don't. I don't think Queen Esther was there. I think she went down in history as this vengeful, awful person. But really, I think she just, she loved her people. She loved her village and she did her best to care for them. And when she had no choice but to leave, she left. So there it is, episode two in the books. Thanks for listening. And please reach out to me. Tell me your Keystone State stories. Tell me your Keystone Light stories. Check me out on social media. I'm on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter. Just search Keystone State of Mind. I also have a Snapchat, Keystone underscore the pod. Uh, you can get me on email, KeystoneStateOfMindThePod at gmail.com. I am working on a website. I don't have it up and running yet, but uh, as soon as I do, I'll let you know. And subscribe. Stay tuned. I'll have another episode for you next week. Stay Keystone, my friends.